Hi, this is Andy Newell from Stratton Mountain School, Solomon Team. Hi, everyone. My name is Antoine C. I'm Haley Swerble. Ah, uh, Kyle Bradford from the Stratton T2 team. Hey, I had the Johannes his Rose Crabble, Rose Crabble, Rose Crabble. Hey, what's up, me boy? What's up? Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? Over there, that big man I found cut the soft pony yellow. On the back stretch, it is Mellon and Richardson. Oh, great day. Super bad weather and you know, a really nice day too. Have a good day. Minnesota bench hoping to get this winning run across here in the tent. It's carried by and glad in the third. So he knows how I ski and, and picks great skis for me, but it's definitely not always very straightforward. Um, First of all, TZ wins. Through the air. You see the critic of air must use air to make a case against air. The Twins are going to win the World Series. The Twins have won it. It's a base hit. It's a 1-0 inning victory. I'll need an effective strategy to mobilize through an international depression. Not going in our yard, Russ. The fact that he's able to make an argument at all proves that he's wrong. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That doesn't make sense. So, Dad plan out our whole day. First we'll make snow angels for two hours, and then we'll go ice skating, and then we'll eat a whole roll of Toll House cookie dough as fast as we can, and then, to finish, we'll snuggle. Testing one, two, three. Welcome to the Cedar Skier Podcast on Shovel Lake Public Radio. We are so glad that you are joining us here this Christmas Eve for a wonderful Cedar Skier Podcast show. We got a lot going on here today, so we better hop right into it. We are going to be talking about a scientific study, because that's kind of our key job. That's our niche here at the Cedar Skier Podcast. Niche, Nietzsche, Nikke, Nikhe, Tehe. We like to dissect the latest research and try to apply it for you so that you can make sense of it and and help help it out. We did just post a wonderful conversation we had with Jim Galanis um, that was posted up yesterday or two days ago um and we will get part two of that to you soon as well probably within the next week um so hopefully you are enjoying the wonderful christmas break we got dumped here yesterday tons of snow then it got super cold uh the workout yesterday was uh double pulling on a gravel road it's kind of the nice thing out here we find some gravel roads that have some good steady climbs and it was packed firm and uh Made for some good double pulling and classic skiing, too. Really, I could uh, practice a little bit of both, but I'm eager and excited to get into some piston bully groomed classic tracks, right? I, when you have this little amount of snow and you got snowmobile grooming or you're just kind of making do with what you got, there's definitely a little bit of uh, enthusiasm lost. There's something about the visual, about looking down and seeing a couple of tracks or that corduroy grooming and... And if you're the first one on it, you know what you have to do, which if you're skate skiing is you have to V2 and make some seriously long strides so that you make everyone else who sees your tracks feel bad about how strong you are. Actually, I had a little bit of that at CMC here, Leadville. They did uh, bring out the big groomer. I don't know if they should have. I think they got away and they were okay. There wasn't really too many dirt spots around, but they groomed the woods and it was incredible skate skiing about a week ago. 
and so I, I was out there trying to <laughs> on the steady 4% climb just make as large of strides as I could and look back and saw some nice V shapes so maybe I'm getting better at skating finally anyway let's hop right into the show for today great sound clips by the way Ralph good job you're getting better and better each time I hope we don't get in trouble for playing too many president-elect Joe Biden quotes but Hopefully people are having some fun with it. Did anyone catch the Zach Mellon 2008 Minnesota State High School League track and field 800-meter state record? Mellon on Richardson, coming around, right, that. I was at that race. One of the greatest sporting events to this day that I've ever witnessed was Mellon taking the 800 in the 4x8, taking Buffalo to third place, running like a 151 split. Later in the day, runs 148 state record. And then comes back a couple, what, 30, 40 minutes later and anchors the 4x4 with a 47-second anchor leg and pulls them from, like, 6th to 3rd. Just unbelievable. And I kind of think we all have probably had uh, sporting events we've witnessed like that where it wasn't on ESPN, it wasn't a pro team, but it was still, it, it just is etched into our minds as one of the most amazing things we saw. Um, I don't know if it is something about being, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old and you're watching maybe an 18 year old even on the track do something and the gap of what you can do on the track versus what they, you're seeing them do is just so amazing or same thing, basketball or football. And it just is etched into your mind, the gap of dominance, uh, so stark, but that was one for me watching Zach Mellon of Buffalo who went on to Wisconsin and didn't do a whole lot, unfortunately, but that was his junior year. He just ripped apart the Minnesota State High School League middle distance scene, and single-handedly, I think Buffalo may have gotten even like third place as a team, but one of the greatest days in high school running, for sure. Uh, speaking of running, I wish today in the show we had time to talk over our the latest news in running, really. Let's Run has been um, covering, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there was a marathon project race. They organized kind of an all-pro, invite-only marathon, and Sarah Hall ran 220 the second fastest time in american history welcome to cedar skier studios here uh my dog has just run into the studio ajay how are you doing ajay good girl yeah okay uh ajay named after ajay wilson of course because you know that right you know ajay wilson i think it's a pretty name not a lot of people can pronounce it but she's doing all right she has been skiing with me as well made it all the way up and down hagerman road probably a 15 mile ski good job Ajay. you are a beast uh, okay so well, well anyway sarah hall was kind of the big big performer in that race i would say uh came in with a 220 and she's really had a good fall she got second at the london marathon and out sprinted the 2019 world marathon champion IAAF world champion marathon. I don't know what her name was, but Sarah Hall out sprinter and took second in the London marathon, which is the highest finish, I think, since Dina Castor in 2006 or something like that. So she runs that 11 weeks later, PRs even more. And I think there was some disappointment because I think her fitness, um, she believed her coach, Ryan Hall, her husband as well, believed that she was in sub American record shape so 218 and and I kind of actually believe that because if you take into account that the shoes might be a two to two and a half minute bonus I bet Sarah Hall was in 220 to 221 shape and with old shoes so with the new shoes I think everything goes right maybe 218 219 
but she still had a really good race. Definitely probably one of those races where it's like 95% of everything went just perfect. So kind of crazy that the second fastest marathoner in our nation's history is not going to be representing us at the Olympic Games. And um, with the delay, you know, a little speculation that maybe something would happen in re-choosing the team. I, I personally think that would be probably the wrong thing to do um, for sure. Even though this is a different circumstance, I don't think you go, well, that marathon trial just doesn't count. Um, everyone laid it out there on the line, fair chance. And um, I think you go with the team that, that races there. That's kind of, you know, the beauty and the sad part about our trial system because I don't think we always put the best team forward. But like Ryan Hall said in Let's Run, we're more about fairness. And he's absolutely right. We have the fairest way. Anyone can qualify. Anyone can be top three. And there you go. You're on your way to the Olympics. And um, I actually, the reason I, I don't like that is because it sometimes doesn't allow for us sending the best athletes. You could have... Well, look at Jordan Hesse, too. She has been one of the top marathoners in the last cycle. But in the last two years, she's had some injury problems and and really limped into the trials and then had to drop out in the race itself. And so you go, Jordan Hesse is probably our best potential for a medal if you looked at, you know, highest ceiling. And Sarah Hall would be a legitimate threat and has actually been quite dependable in how much she's been racing, you know, the one bad race she had basically was the Olympic trials. And so I think the system is kind of negative for athletes like that. And for, you know, if we want to actually kind of like decide as a, as a committee or group, like who do we think gives us the best chance to get a medal? I don't think our system necessarily works out well. I think you could argue though, that the cutthroat nature of it maybe does, you know, the cream is going to rise to the crop, so to speak, when you've got to qualify, then you got to train for the race and you have to perform at the race or in track, you know, make it through the trials, make it through the heats and through all those. So track, it's almost even, it's more brutal, but also then more exciting. Um, and, and maybe, maybe that there's an argument to be made, you know, like if you, if you are able to navigate the qualifying system, run a fast enough time to qualify. And then at the actual trials themselves, handle three or four days of qualification, heat, semifinal, final, you know, that's what the Olympics is going to be like. So you're the best at that system. Even if you don't have the fastest overall time, you're the best at that. And so I think there's some merit to that, but I think more importantly, the reason that that system is kind of good is it creates a track meet or in the marathon's case, a race that is almost more exciting than the Olympic marathon itself. The U S Olympic trials is perhaps the greatest track meet on planet earth. Um, and I say that because the stakes are so incredibly high, perhaps higher than the Olympics themselves. Now you could argue if you win an Olympic gold medal in say the mile or the 800, the 1500 or the mile, the metric mile, you are kind of set up for life. Now that's perhaps true. Um, but as an American, let's be realistic as well. If you just make it to the Olympics, you've probably secured, uh, some shoe contract deals, uh, maybe some, you know, now you're an Olympian, you can always attach that to your name so you can give speeches, lectures, you can be a coach, blah, blah, blah. The Olympic trials though, is the place where careers are either extended or they're shut down for good. Everyone's lives are on the line. It is 
insane the amount of pressure and the the gravity of the outcome that can happen from being third the difference between third place or fourth place i actually witnessed this with leo manzano who was one of the most successful championship middle distance runners and and uh, 1500 meter runners i think in in our you know in the recent 20 or 30 years gets very little respect for it but he won a silver medal in beijing i believe um and was always a threat at the world's and at the Olympic trials and our U.S. championships, either was winning or second, you know, always right there. And at the 2016 Olympic trials, he got fourth and kind of got boxed out a little bit by Ben Blankenship, who made his first Olympic team. And in the uh, as working for Eagle Eye, you know, and the cameras, uh, we, we do footage review. And so at the and this is like the, one of the last days, last events, there was his coach down there fighting for Leo's life. You know, his career is hanging in the balance here if he is fourth his contract's over which this is what ended up happening right he ended up getting fourth lost his contract was unsponsored for a couple of years and that was kind of the end of his career and he was getting towards the twilight of his career but certainly two or three more years of being a paid nike athlete was within the realm of possibility and it was basically can you make it to another olympics and you're good and he didn't and so his coach, knowing that, is arguing for Blankenship to be DQ'd, and there was just all this rigmarole, and you just saw the realness uh, happen right there. And you see that in every race. I mean, it's the only the only place I think it's it's not quite that is the hundred and two hundred and 400 for the top people those are kind of the celebrity stars of track and field so so the noah lyles they they got really taken care of maybe with their first contract it's a big contract if if they were to do nothing they'd still be all right but a lot of these a lot of these runners in our sport uh, pole vaulters track all all these events right there they are regular people who are phenomenal athletes but like they're not set and secure like a peyton manning and they'll just walk away and and the trials is just so cool for that, right? The, not only is there the Olympic dream at stake, but your actual livelihood is at stake. Are you going to be able to be a runner tomorrow is at stake. Makes that race, that event amazing. And fans flock to it too. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, this is one reason why the new Hayward Field, I think, could kind of ruin it a little bit, um, is you know, the intimacy of the old Hayward Field. The fans are right there and it is packed. Uh, the climate there is unlike anything I've ever seen, and I've been to quite a few different track meets. Not a lot, but I've seen I've seen um, and and kind of been a part of everything from you know your local invite to state meets, um, national meets at different <clears throat> divisions, Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. I've seen kind of the different scalings there, and um, I've, I've been to a few U.S. championships. And for running and um, a couple of big marathons and a couple of local small marathons with pride and Fargo marathon, right. And grandma's marathon, but man, the Olympic trials is unlike anything else. Anyone who loves running the, the people who, who really keep the sport alive in this country and in the world are all there and you can feel it. And there's the, the talk everywhere, every place you walk into from a coffee shop to an ice cream shop to just walking back to your hotel. It's runners everywhere. It's people talking about what happened. The fans know what's happening at the meet itself. There is an engagement and a reaction from them as things within the meet happen that is unlike any other meet. Um, 
<clears throat> it is very crazy when you watch a meet at Hayward Field. The the knowledge of that fan base does make a difference when you're watching the game. It's almost like if you went to the Super Bowl, but you put 75,000 toddlers in the Superdome to watch the Super Bowl, there, there just would be noise versus 75,000 football coaches and football fans, and they would be re- reacting accordingly. This is like that, only even, even more so. The fans are just right there, and they're close and intimate. Like I said, it's crowded, and there's history, and and again, everything's at stake. Uh, the the year after the trials, two years after, we went to the University of Austin. I sorry, University of Texas at Austin for a meet. Great facility, kind of fun to be in a different place, uh, bigger stadium, cool campus, awful like fan feeling. You know, it was the exact opposite of what I'm talking about at Hayward. It was not even sometimes always noise, and the weather was awful for distance running. So some of the sprint, you know, it's way too hot. Um, the performances were just not as cool, but but in general, the crowd, the intuitness of the crowd was totally gone. So <laughs> I didn't expect to talk about this right away off the bat, but I, there goes my rant on. I'm not even sure how you categorize that. How are we going to talk about that in the show? Ranting about the Hayward Field Olympic Let's Run. I I don't know. My my final point that I'll just say is, despite the fact that our Olympic team choosing system is. not the best at probably selecting the team that will do the best at the games. It provides because of its structure, it provides in and of itself an incredible event. And that for that reason, I kind of think we should just keep it. You know, you you could argue, well, isn't it just all about, you know, don't we want to perform the best at the Olympics and at the world championships? Yeah, but I don't know. Let's it's about sport too. This is about us giving our best to be our best. So what Ryan Hall says is it's about fairness, not necessarily picking the best athletes for the best team. I kind of think there's some validity to that argument. Like, hey, let's I'm okay sacrificing us not sending the best team if we're about fairness because my overall philosophy of sport is that we are trying to be the best that we can be. And this is a way that this this does that better. If you were kind of the type of if you had a system like in Kenya where the marathon team is kind of just selected um, or other places where it's more politically based. Oh gosh, that that would be so un-American in so many ways. But but uh, on you know aside, it would just be like there's no way for average Joe to come up, and that's what kind of the American dream is all about. And it does it makes us all equals, <clears throat> right? Like when Galen Rupp, when Rupp stood on the line at the marathon trials, technically he had as he had the same right to the Olympic spot as the guy who ran 217 at Grandma's and barely qualified. And if Rupp doesn't show up and finish the race and get in the top three, he's not going to the Olympics, even though he's Galen Rupp. And he's the greatest American distance runner of all time, and he's in his marathon prime, and he is hands down the most talented and hands down the best metal threat, hands down the best marathon runner. He still has to show up, bring his lunch pail, and go to work. And I like that. I think that needs to remain um, and, I, and I think the second we start trying to mess with, well, maybe there's a way we can have a little bit of both. I used to kind of think that way, but now I'm just like, you know what? No, the second we do that, it's a slippery slope and who cares, right? I would way rather preserve the awesomeness of the Olympic trials at the expense of us losing a few medals because we didn't send a guy who was really hot, but then got DQ'd in his heat of a hundred. You know, too bad. That's that's the tragedy of the trials of sports. That's what makes sports amazing, you know. Um, so I think I think that's what you got to do. And and every year there's something like that that happens. You know, we come in with some guy, some girl or guy who is the favorite by a mile in the 800 or the 400, 
or the mile. And then in, in their semifinal heat, they get tripped or they get boxed out and they don't qualify for the finals. And it's like, well, we're not going to send that person to the Olympics. They're, our, they're number two in the world. Well, too bad they didn't show up at this meet, and that's what makes it sweet because now we have the mother of twins who's 34 living in Iowa working as an accountant who just made it to the finals, and that's the story of the morning over coffee in the Eugene Starbucks. So there we go. Our running rant for today is now complete. Um, <clears throat> I think we need to hop into our scientific study, though. So uh, when we come back from, from this first break, we are going to – Take a look at a research that looks at one of the best cross-country skiers in the world and their training over a three-year period. Don't go away. The Cedar Skier Podcast is brought to you by Malto Meal. Malto Meal Blueberry Muffin Toasters, backed by popular demand with a new name. Blueberry Muffin Toasters is a lightly puffed cereal made with whole wheat and rice. You just can't top the fresh-baked blueberry muffin flavor in every bite. Pour a bowl of crunchy blueberry goodness and enjoy. I can't say enough. How happy I am to have Malto Meal in my cupboards. I like to mix Malto Meal in my oatmeal. It gives me a little bit of extra iron. It's not quite as high in fiber, which makes my wife happy. Malto Meal is also made in Northfield, so it has that local touch. Malto Meal, supporting the Cedar Skier Podcast since 2020. All right, we are back. Cedar Skier Podcast on Shuttle Lake Public Radio. And the study that we wanted to look at is a 2019 study. Actually, it's a 20, there's a 2020 study that we're going to dive into that is uh, comparing or looking at um, heart rate and blood lactate, comparing uh, in a block period, periodized, periodized high-intensity training uh, portion of training. So basically looking at BP hit, uh, BP standing for block training. Uh, I'll just read the title. Sorry. <laughs> so intensity control during block periodized high intensity training, heart rate and lactate concentration during three annual seasons in world-class cross country skiers. This is October of 2020. So the purpose of this study is to describe heart rate and blood lactate responses during high intensity interval training in a long-term block periodized hit regimen in world-class cross country skiers. Um, and the basis for this study, however, is uh, coming from data from 2003 to 2006 uh, from Nor the Norwegian national team. Because, of course, all their training data just goes to, like, the same, you know, computerized database. So they can go back and look at it and then uh, analyze it. So the, there's a 2019 study. It's actually published April 5th, which is my birthday. How cool. Uh, Soli Tonneson Sandbach. 2019, this study is block versus traditional periodization of HIT. Two different paths to success for the world's best cross-country skier. So that's the study I would like to look at today. All right, and I've got some notes, but there's going to be some. I, I'm also going to um, just read uh, read to you the study. It's not all that long, so we can stop and, and make our comments as well. Um, uh oh, just lost my spot here in my notes. Hold on here. All right. But basically, uh, what we're going to see here is w when we go through the introduction, basically we have TRAD, which is traditional, uh, training and we have BP hit. Okay. Those are my, um, uh, acronyms, I guess. BP hit is blocked periodization, high intensity training, uh, traditional training is when you tend to um, increase your high-intensity 
training sessions as you approach the competitive season. So in training, we have high intensity, medium intensity, and low intensity. And in the traditional model, at the beginning of the year, you don't have all that much high intensity training. Most of your volume is low intensity training. Um, and some medium intensity. And then as you get closer to the competitive period, you increase your high intensity training. Okay, That's sort of the traditional approach. Uh, in block periodization, you have right from the get-go, you are um, in each block, which could be anywhere from 7 to 11 days, you will focus on one of those intensities a lot. So one 7 to 10 day, you might be focusing on low intensity and really over overdoing that one intensity i i not i'm when i say overdoing just an exaggeration and the theory being that when you do that the stimulus is greater so for 7 11 days you've got you know six or seven high intensity sessions if the high intensity is your um of the you know hit mit or lit <laughs> You guys catching that right now? Lit is low intensity. Mit is medium. Hit is high intensity. So if you choose a block and you're going to focus on hit, you're going to really, really kill the hit and do a ton of hit, lots of hit. And um, the stimulus is then supposedly going to be greater. Then you move to the next block and you maybe focus on LIT or MIT and you lower everything else, the other ones a lot or none at all. Um, and so that's kind of the two approaches. Okay, The traditional model, you're kind of hitting a little bit of uh, all of those every single week, you know, you've got your long day, your medium day, and your your high intensity day, and so blocked is just a little more focused. Okay, so that's kind of the 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 reasoning behind this, the comparison. Those are sort of what those two are, and so the again the twenty twenty study really looked to just analyze heart rate and blood lactate responses to hit. Uh, but but I think kind of perhaps a more interesting study, or at least one we we should start at first, is this Soli study. I don't know if I'm saying Soli name right. S O L L I, the researcher. Um, but that compares the uh, this elite athlete who happened to have records of using both uh, trad and BP, so both traditional and blocked throughout her career. And so it looks at a 2003 to 2006 span, and then I think a 2014 to 2015 span. And they and in either of those they, they she kind of utilizes both and with um, successful you know outcomes in terms of world championship results and Olympic results uh, and so and anyway that's the study that I'd like to dive in right now so let's get into it all right uh, we're gonna start and read our I'll just read the abstract in short term block periodization of high intensity training. In short-term studies, BP of HIT has been shown to be an effective strategy that enhances performance and related physiological factors. However, long-term studies and detailed investigations of macro, meso, and micro periodization of hit blocks and world-class endurance athletes are currently lacking. And so basically, you know, they see that when we try and look at BP or HIT, you know, you get a six-week thing or a 12-week intervention or whatever, and this is uh, much different. Here we go. In a recent study, we showed that the world's most successful cross-country skier used two different periodization models with success throughout her career, one including extensive use of HIT blocks, namely BP, and one using a traditional method, namely TRAD. In this study, we compare BP with TRAD in two comparable successive se successful seasons and provide a detailed description of the annual use of hit blocks in BP. The participant is the most decorated Winter Olympian, with eight Olympic gold medals, 18 World Championship titles, and 114 World Cup victories. That's crazy. 
I believe this is Marie Borgen, right? Probably. Training data was categorized by training form, endurance, strength, and speed, intensity, low, moderate, and high, so lit, mint, hit, and mode, running, cycling, and skiing or roller skiing. No significant difference was found in the total endurance training load between BP and TRAD. So now we're already getting into some of the results. This is the abstract, remember. Uh, we're going to go over these again, though. But so one result, no significant difference in the total endurance training load between the two. However, training volume in BP was lower compared to TRAD. Um, and the lower is in 15 plus or minus 6 hours a week versus 18 plus or minus 7 hours a week. Uh, and that's mainly explained by less lit, 13 plus or minus 5 in the BP and 15 plus or minus 5 hours a week in TRAD. Lower volume of MIT was also performed in BP compared to TRAD. 13 versus 38 sessions a year, whereas the amount of hit was higher in BP, 157 versus 77 sessions a year. So almost twice as many high intensity in the BP, high intensity sessions. While BP included high amounts of hit already from the first preparation period, followed by a reduction toward the competition period, TRAD had a progressive increase in hit toward the competition period. So that's again saying that in BP, in that model, you have high intensity stuff starting right away and you kind of taper off as you approach the comp period, whereas it's the opposite for TRAD. A progressive increase. In BP, the athlete performed seven hit blocks, varying from seven to 11 days, each including eight to 13 hit sessions. So if you do the math there, you're looking at, um, you know, if it's seven to 11 days and eight to 13 hit sessions, that means you're having almost one hit session every day. Or I suppose, you, you know, you probably, on average, you probably wouldn't do it like that. But, you know, two hard intensity sessions in one day is probably more likely. This study provides novel insights into successful utilization of two different periodization models in the world's best cross-country skier and illustrates the macro, meso, and micro periodization of hit blocks to increase the overall amount of hit. Let's continue in the introduction. Cross-country skiing is regarded as one of the most demanding endurance sports with training and competition challenging every step of the oxygen, oxygen transport chain. And I'm, by the way, when they're citing stuff, I'm just not going to read the researchers, so we'll just go through it to make it faster. Thus, XE skiers training primarily targets the aerobic endurance capacity, and the most common training model among XE skiers includes 700 to 850 hours of endurance training, just, that's annual, distributed as 90% lit, 4 to 5% moderate or mit, and 5 to 8% as high intensity training or hit. Although hit sessions normally make up only one to three of the weekly training sessions of XC skiers and many other endurance athletes, or less than 20% of the total annual number of sessions, they are the keys in eliciting physiological and performance gains. <clears throat> in fact, it is argued that an increased volume and or frequency of hit would be beneficial for the further development of elite endurance athletes. Now, the last statement is kind of critical because, you know, now we're saying that um, even though you're hardly doing any hit, hit is what makes you better, basically. And so if we could increase the volume or the frequency, it would be beneficial, according to the 2010 Larson study. Independent of the overall intensity distribution, most studies report that the periodization of hit versus mit and lit in XE skiing is achieved via the traditional periodization model. TRAD, right? Utilization of this model is characterized by mixed focus on lit, mit, and hit in all periods. But with a gradual progression from high training volume to higher training intensity, reduced volume, and training that is more specific as the competition period approaches. So the idea, you know, you're doing highest volumes early in the year, but it's mostly lit. And then as you approach the competition period, you reduce your overall volume, but you increase your uh, percentage of intensity and more specific to the competition as you approach competition. So your training is more specific, higher speeds. 
right? However, the traditional periodization model has re received criticism because of possible conflicting physiological adaptations produced by the mixed training of many performance-related factors simultaneously. As an alternative, it has been argued that a more effective way of organizing endurance training is to include defined blocks of increased focus on specific intensities. Looks like Isurin, 2008, 2010, 2016, 2018, is the guy behind that. <clears throat> so he must be the, the expert. In this context, blocks of highly concentrated hit stimulus aims to induce a beneficial metabolic impact and appropriate hormonal response to optimize the subsequent adaptations. While positive short-term effects of using hip blocks to augment training responses have been shown, only a small number of studies have compared block periodization of HIT with evenly distributed HIT match traditional models. So basically what they're saying there is Isurin kind of states this is why we the block training, we think it works, the stimulus, beneficial metabolic impact. And they're saying we've actually seen this work in a few <coughs> um, examples, studies, but most of these studies haven't really compared HIT with TRAD. Um, and typically, they are over short periods of time. Okay. These studies have compared the different periodization models by matching the overall hit stimulus, whereas the use of block periodization of hit in a real-life context is often related to an increase in the overall hit stimulus. Although one long-term study followed a national-level male cyclist through 58 weeks of systematic blocking of lit, mit, and hit, most previous studies on BP of hit are limited by short intervention periods, 4 to 12 weeks. None have examined endurance athletes at world-class level. Okay. So that's going to make this one amazing. The, furthermore, there is a lack of detailed investigations into macro, meso, and micro periodization utilizing hit blocks and evidence how this model is distinguished from the traditional model according to the organization of training across the annual cycle in world-class endurance athletes. In a recent study, we showed that the world's most successful XC skier used two different periodization models with success throughout her career. That's solely 2017. Okay. One, including extensive use of hip blocks, namely BP, and a, tra a traditional model, na uh, namely TRAD. In this follow-up case study, that's the one we're looking at, the main aims are to compare BP with TRAD in two comparably successful seasons in the world's best XC skier, and to provide a detailed description of our annual use of hip blocks. This will provide novel information on the macro, meso, and micro organization of lit, mit, and hit, and generate new hypotheses for follow-up studies. <clears throat> Excellent. So what do we have here? Basically, we have trad, we have BP hit, right? I already kind of explained the theory behind that. Um, so let's hop into how they design this study, okay? How it's designed. We're going to take a look at Murray Borgen's training, basically. Materials and methods. Participant, right? We already said 114 World Cup victories, 8 Olympic gold medals. Overall design. This study builds on a previous longitudinal training study. So solely in 2017 already kind of had this information, right? <clears throat> Identifying two training periodization models, block and trad, in the skier's training patterns. Here, the detailed training content during one representative year using BP of HIT, 2005-2006, and one representative year using the trad model, 2014-2015. Okay, so they selected two seasons, right? The B the BP years, 2005-2006, the trad years, 2014-2015. And how did they select these years? Here's how they did it. Based three three criteria. One, successful performance during the examined year. So she won World Cup races in both sprint and distance in both seasons, which led to victory in the sprint and overall World Cup. Wow. Ten years apart. 
Also, two, equal endurance training load, or ETL, based on training impulse or TRIMP. We're going to talk about what those are, but that was the second criteria. They couldn't, you know, they had to have equal training loads <clears throat> going by TRIMP. And number three, detailed information about the design of training sessions throughout the season. So we have our two designs. One note I, I kind of wanted to bring up there that I thought was a little interesting is I, I find it interesting that Trad was what the athlete used later in her career. So earlier on in 0405, she was more BP hit and later on switched to trad. And I was kind of wondering, is that was that a decision consciously made because BP models are a little too risky with age? If you think about it, um, if you are going to overemphasize high intensity for a block, that, that to me, your goal is, okay, we're going to do even more hard sessions we're going to exaggerate the hard session stimulus um and i would think with an older athlete your risk of injury uh or yeah uh, your risk of injury doesn't outweigh the fact that you're already an old athlete you've already probably made most of the gains you could in um in this realm so uh, maybe they switched to trad because it's like this model works better for us because we can stay sharp. We just want to maintain kind of what our high intensity efficiency is. So it doesn't make sense to go overboard trying to make gains. We'll just sharpen up as we approach the competition period. Not to say, right, that, okay, once you're an old athlete, when you're an old athlete, it's almost, it is more important in many ways to focus on maintaining those high intensity efficiencies because you don't just naturally have that power and explosiveness, but to train it hard in a BP method where you're doing, you know, seven to 11 day blocks with eight to 13 sessions maybe is too risky. So I, I was just kind of wondering if I wonder if that's what bit, what bit behind that decision, but that would be kind of my guess, or at least what I would prescribe for an athlete too is, yeah, when you're young and you uh, are able to, other parts of your body, whether it's tendons, uh, muscle fibers, strains, like the risk of that, the pliability of, of your body is a little bit better as than as you age. If if you want to try and take some of these, quote, risks from doing a BP style, then I think you can make uh, tremendous gains if, if the science behind this is right, right? That if we kind of overload the system, the stimulus will be better and the, the adaptation will be better. <clears throat> that's fine. But, but at, when you're 34, you've already accomplished everything you want. You just want to kind of like, you're happy with where you're at in terms of stimulus training. Like you're, you're training other things to be sharp. You're not trying to maybe increase your efficiency at high intensity intervals. You just want to show up to the line, healthy, strong, and in shape. Um, maybe not a transformed person. Maybe that's a better way of saying it, but if you want to transform your skiing or transform any endurance, you know, component, then the BP hit model uh, might be more efficient and effective time-wise, but might also be more risky. <clears throat> so then monitoring and registration, I want to just read this session section of the study as well. It uh, Basically what this says is all the training data is designed by the Norwegian Ski Association and the Norwegian Olympic Federation, uh, so it's all put into a computerized database um, so that, that they can see, you know, was it lit, mit, hit? What was a session type? Uh, how was it organized? Specific preparation, competition phase, training form, endurance, strength, speed, right? Everything is there easily um, for 
for all the athletes, all that information. And, and then I'll also say too, that the final thing here is they talk about how they did do some diary interviews and just to look at, uh, talking to coaches and things like that. But, but going back to that, the the point I want to emphasize is that the Norwegian scientists have this information available to them. Coaches have the information. Athletes have to put in their training to a database. So is that a positive? Is it a pro? Is it a con? Uh, from a research standpoint, it seems like a definite pro because we have this wealth of information. Scientists and coaches, they can then pour over it. Um, it's all shared data too. So it doesn't matter if you're you know, in the Nike Oregon Project and you're also running for the Shovel Lake Running Club. You can see what Galen Rupp's doing. You can see what Ryan Cedarquist is doing. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Uh, I, I think, again, from a research standpoint, kind of a good thing. Now, I think there could be cons as well. So my pro that I would say is, well, yes, we have a wealth of information. Now scientists and coaches can pour over it. What's the con? We have a wealth of information. Scientists and coaches can pour over it. So for one thing, they might come to wrong conclusions. They get a little bit too obsessed with data, and and they try to take that as doctrine. Um, and, and data is data, but interpretation of data must be done, and that is a fallible enterprise. <laughs> wow, he's done a very smart there, a little Jason Lyle-like. But basically what I'm saying there is, uh, sure, the, the numbers don't lie, but your interpretation of those numbers is certainly uh, coupled to being flawed. And so when we have just a wealth, a wealth of data, we're still depending on someone interpreting that and making decisions for training and for coaching you as the athlete. And um, sometimes I think if you have too much data, you lose a little bit of your reliance on the, the art of coaching, interpreting your athletes, the signs they're giving you um, and the, their special, unique individual needs. And that perhaps might be even more important than what the numbers can ever give you. Um, so that's one con. Another con I would say is we, we know as an athlete, I, I don't know how thrilled I would be that everyone knows or is able to find out kind of what I'm doing, or even if it's not everyone, but there is that information is out there. There are some people who like to share their training. That's fine. I don't mind sharing components of it, but I feel like if you are completely exposed, you're kind of vulnerable. First of all, it's that American side, right? Don't have a right to privacy, but also, if I'm feeling really good about my training, maybe I don't want to share that information with my opponents that this seems to really work for me. And if I'm not doing well, I maybe don't want to be open up to criticism of, well, you can you, let's open up his training diary. Look at all these mistakes he's making. Or, well, obviously he's going to do bad because of this or that. I think that can be kind of unfair. I, I just don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily want that as an athlete to just have that completely out in the open. And I get that that grows the sport, it grows our knowledge, but um, I think there's to some degree a balance because, again, when you just plug in numbers on a spreadsheet, someone else is going to take that, you know, a fan or another coach or a journalist, and they're looking at that. They don't understand what's going behind those numbers that are, are being punched in. There's more, more to it than just the numbers, and that plays a role in decision-making in your training and and outcomes in races. And so, it, again, they don't have enough context to make a fallible, infallible interpretation of this this data. So it just kind of opens the door for um, more problems in some ways. Again, it's like, if you, yes, it's, it's an increase in transparency, but since it's not a full increase in transparency, you don't get to see the, a YouTube live stream of these athletes living their lives 24-7. You don't know how much they're eating, what 
how much they're sleeping, what they're eating, how they're taking care of themselves, how they warm up before a, a workout, you know, what's going on in their lives and their brains. It's, you don't have that full transparency. You can't really make full, complete sense of this piece of knowledge you've been given. I think that's critical for us to remember with any piece of knowledge that um, without full knowledge, we can't really, um, we can't, we can't 100% interpret data information fallibly. We always need context. And the best we can do in situations like this is, is a certain degree of context. We can never have full context. So that's one thing I don't totally like. All right, a little bit of wandering there, but let's get on to what the results of this study were. And the results on here are pretty fascinating. They have some graphs, a table the uh, that shows the weekly distribution across different periodization phases in both the traditional and the blocked model for Marie Borg. And you can look at that. It's a, it's a pretty sweet table. And then you can see the figure that shows, figure one shows the distribution of the total training volume and endurance training load. Well, this is interesting here. Um, Shovel Lake Radio just pulled the plug on us. We just had 30 minutes of discussion that just was wiped away. I guess Twitter, uh, we speak so much truth that we get, it's offensive to others. So much truth. Facebook is censoring us, and we lost 30 minutes of just totally in-depth, awesome uh, <laughs> analyzation of this study. But maybe I can try and summarize all that I was doing, basically mentioning that table. Um, I'll, I'll kind of combine that with a, the discussion. You really should check out this study. If you're kind of a science guy and you're interested in these things, you want to pull open uh, the best athlete in the world's training, this is, this is a pretty cool, transparent way of doing that. Uh, but basically, that the the table that I found really helpful to look at it it splits up the year into the general prep phase, the first one, GP one, general prep phase, the second phase, GP two, specific prep and competition prep, and it just lays out all the training hours, training forms, exercise modes, uh, total time, total sessions, and it even categorizes the low intensity training, which does come up here in the discussion. The main differences we see between BP and traditional. Um, across are that the traditional model um, does have a slight increase in hit as you approach competition versus the other model, the BP model, which has a slight decrease. And then also BP is going to have right from the get-go in GP1 quite a bit of high-intensity training. So if you look at the number of sessions, for example, in GP1 for BP, 56% are lit, 4% are mitt, and 40% are hit. Uh, versus traditional, you got 80% lit, 11% mitt, and only 9% hit. Um, GP2, if we're just looking at hit, the BP has 34% versus 16% the traditional, so an increase in traditional, a slight decrease in BP. Going to the specific prep, uh, BP has a it jumps back up 41% hit. Uh, traditional keeps climbing 19% hit. And then CP 33% hit versus traditional 22% hit. And if you're looking then at the total um, across the board for the whole year, the percentage of sessions that are lit, mit, and hit respectively for BP it's 61% lit, 3% mit, hardly any, and then 36% hit pretty high. Traditional is 76% lit, 8% mitt, and 16% hit. That's that's typically probably more what you or I experienced as an athlete, um, the percentages across the board of how much low-intensity training are you doing, how much high-intensity training. Now, if you, if you talk about it in terms of time, um, these numbers might seem more 
also what you're thinking about in terms of just time, the endurance training time, BP, 88% of the time is spent low intensity. 92% in traditional is spent in low intensity. Only 1% is spent in medium in BP and 4% is spent medium and traditional. Then high intensity, 11% in BP versus 4% traditional. So still almost three times the amount of total time spent in high intensity training. And so I, I would argue that I guess if you're going by the law of sports specificity, right, and you want um, you want to improve your your efficiency at really high intensities maybe BP is the way to go they do talk about however that the traditional is maybe slightly safer uh, in some ways because of different response I'm going to read that paragraph but th- those are some of just across the board some some noticeable things that I found uh, another thing that is important and, th- and that's probably why they included this categorization of low intensity training is they brought up how the BP model the volume of low intensity training was was spent a lot in warm-ups and cool downs versus the traditional model where you had a lot of a lot more I should say over 90 minute, sessions and I think that's when we talk about like in running I know there's definitely a difference between uh and there's conversation around this like can I get the same response if I do a 30 minute run in the morning a 30 minute run at lunch and a 30 minute run in the evening versus one session in 90 minutes I would say those are not the same at all uh in a 90 minute run one shot you are going to in the last half hour or more start to use fast twitch muscle fibers that's what happens as you go long in one one session so for running that's kind of huge that's why you see 5k runners 3k runners doing a two-hour sunday long run it it actually has a different benefit um now if you're training for an ultra run let's say you know where you're going to be running all day you need to know how to run on low recovery you need to know how to run after just eating lunch whatever then i think those three 30-minute runs uh serves a a, perhaps a better purpose, but certainly a different purpose. So I'm not really sure how that translates into skiing, but they did mention that in BP, that model that a lot of that low intensity training was spent warming up and cooling down. Um, so that's something to think about as well. Um, let's see the practical application. I'm just going to skip ahead again. Uh, our 30 minutes of lost conversation was us kind of dissecting the discussion, but you can uh, check that out on your own. If you're someone kind of new to studies, I do I do uh, usually the way I would approach some of these is I'll look at the abstract, read through the whole abstract, kind of get an idea. Um, and then often I, I actually do read the discussion if I'm in a big hurry. You know, they'll kind of explain the main results. And then they also explain the relevancy of those main results. So if I if that's if I only can read two things, I'll probably do that. But then I sometimes do go back. I read the introduction so I get the understand the setup, which often inf- impacts how I reread the discussion. <laughs> so then I'll go back, read the intro, and read it, read everything in the order it is. It, it definitely seems to make more sense. But um, the abstract and the discussion, and then looking at the tables is is uh, definitely worth it. Practical applications. I'll read this. It says. This study shows that block periodization of HIT was successfully utilized in a world-class XC skier. In particular, we highlight the importance of balanced macro periodization during HIT blocks by utilizing different exercise modes, careful steering of intensity, and reductions in the training load and amount of HIT after each block. In addition, the periodization model must be adjusted to the athlete's training status, and the risk of negative overreaching and stress on the immunological system must be considered. However, the participant also achieved substantial success using a traditional model, which might be considered a safer model. We hope that our study can highlight the importance of tailoring training to each individual athlete based on training history and other factors influencing adaptation to training. So, 
I do think that that um, th- you know they brought the safer thing. So I guess they they. I didn't read that before I, I took my hot take of maybe that's why she switched later on. Now, I will say something that we missed in talking through the discussion was the fact that in those general prep phases, which are kind of so wildly different between the two, you know, on the one hand, we see tons of hit sessions early on and BP traditional. They're kind of laying off that traditional has a lot of lit and mitt during all the phases a lot more. And they were talking about which one elicited the most improvement between general prep one and general prep two. And they said it was pretty similar. However, that being said, uh, the athlete switched to traditional 10 years later. So has 10 years extra training, is a better athlete perhaps, um, and that could have affected results, as well as the fact that they they mentioned that the competition structure was different. So there still need to be more research to suggest which one does better. And I would think, as we're trying to apply this to athletes, one thing I, I was kind of considering was what happens if you are taking an athlete who's from a traditional background and they're kind of used to adding in more intensity as they approach the competition period and um, being sharp then. And you go, okay, this year we're going to try and do this BP model, and which means we're going to be doing a ton of hit. We're really going to swing big in terms of huge stimulus, huge rest, huge compensation, and, and probably huge results. But in June or July, you know, early on in the year, does that affect their psych them psychologically? You know that now they feel way sharper all of a sudden for whatever reason. Um, and even if you approach this smart and correctly, and you're only giving them enough stimulus to improve, you're not overtraining them. They're getting enough recovery. I still think there's some athletes coming from a certain background. They might like just not they not might not be able to enter that mindset of okay i'm doing like race specific really high intensity blocks here and it's april or may this seems kind of weird but now all of a sudden i'm i I feel really sharp can i hold that not really realizing that the bp model does then you know in the next block they're going to focus on a different um type a little more you know hitting lit really high i guess they didn't really do that a whole lot in this right they just kind of hit a hit block and then they have rest and and then they come back and hit it again in that seven to eleven day time period um anyway the the key results i guess you could see here that i didn't get go over those completely one despite similar uh, endurance training load a higher training volume due to more mitt and longer duration lit was found in the traditional uh, in contrast, is number two, twice as many hit sessions were performed in BP. Uh, this is among the highest volumes of hit ever reported for elite endurance athletes. This high hit volume was achieved by organizing 45% of the annual hit sessions across seven hit blocks varying from 7 to 11 days, with each block including 8 to 13 sessions. The progression and distribution of hit differed clearly between periodization, periodization models. BP included high amount of hit already from the first prep phase, followed by a reduction toward competition period, while Trad had a progressive increase in hit toward the CP. And altogether, this study illustrates two successful ways of periodizing endurance training in a world-class athlete. So those are some of the, the comments, discussion from the actual study. Just wanted to see, I, I know I made some notes, want to make sure that I mentioned some of those that I thought. Um, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, two two sort of things I want to bring up. First, I better sip some coffee. So in reading this, what is my sort of takeaway or how would I apply this? 
Um, first of all, I did want to mention that ETL, if you didn't catch that, that's the endurance training load based on training impulse or trimp. Total ETL is a trimp score. So one minute at LT or MT and HT is given a score of one, two, and three respectively. And they said ETL was equal in both tread and BP. So the, the total training load was equal, but there was a higher volume uh, found in trad. So let's let's talk about MIT. I think MIT gets a lot of bad rep, the middle intensity, okay? And I think it's kind of due to a mischaracterization of it. People say, okay, if we're going to go, if we're going, if, if you are going too slow to be intense, but too fast to recover, you're not doing yourself any good. And I do think this is true depending on what your goal is. You know, if, you're, if your goal is to simply improve a really high-intensity efficiency, then yes, you need to make sure that you're recovering. And, and even, even – well, yeah, I'll just stop right there. And that's, that is 95% of athletes for sure, uh, our high school athletes who are racing 5Ks and 10Ks. The middle intensity isn't as uh, – typically we see middle intensity come up on a recovery day. They're, they are out there, and they should be going a little easier – to recover from that high intensity day. But I still think even with that age group, there is a place for a middle intensity day. And I think coaches tend to ignore it. You know, that's to me, that's kind of where you place your Saturday workout. Sometimes if you're not, don't have a meet, right. You're, you're, uh, you're sort of middle long run. You're, you want, you want them to get out there and not just screw around and recover. This actually has a purpose. It's a steady state, um, uh, day and you're not going race pace or you are going slower than race pace you're going conversational pace but not slower than that and I, I do like thinking about it like that like if you're the pace at which you can hold a conversation as fast as you can go while holding a conversation I think that actually does have a place in in people's training but let's just say too what if your goal is to improve that middle intensity efficiency which if you are racing 100ks uh like really long stuff your middle intensity really is your race pace uh we see this in especially again in in running you, you talk to these ultra guys who are are trying to set 100 mile records or 100k records and um they they do train sometimes at marathon pace which is faster than race pace and they even do track workouts to improve their overall economy but that that mitt workout is not unimportant because that's essentially their race pace too uh but but now i'm i would say if you're doing a mitt workout after back-to-back hit sessions right with not enough recovery you're going too fast for recovery it that in and of itself altogether is its own stimulus doing a hit and then a mitt and a mitt and another hit and another mitt and you're like oh my gosh where's the recovery here it's like no no this whole thing in together is its own stimulus and then we're going to recover we our stimulus might actually be four consecutive days uh, because you need to know your body needs to prepare for going mitt pace on tired legs and you need to practice and replicate that in some form so that doesn't really bother me uh, another thing on this point though i think that i is a little bit newer to me but steve mangus i think does a really good job talking about it in his book running science is basically we should be training and touching on all paces at various times throughout the whole year. And there isn't a pace that is, you know, a bad pace. He has his athletes who might be racing their marathon pace, let's say is 530 a mile. And so the hard and staunch people might say, okay, your recovery pace should be about eight minutes. And, you know, when you're doing workouts, it's five minutes to 530 or whatever. And you shouldn't really be ever running seven minute mile pace. You're just doing nothing doing that. Magnus would say, no, the seven-minute mile pace runs or the six, 10-minute mile pace runs have a purpose. And it's important to train the body at running at all types of different paces. And I think that is a little bit, 
there there is truth in that because as if that's showing that we're becoming overall more biomechanically efficient then it's important because by becoming more biomechanically efficient overall then whatever race pace we select we're going to be more efficient at that pace too and so i think that does potentially apply to skiing as well we we don't necessarily i think need to exaggerate on okay i'm either going to go really slow or really fast (laughs) or if you want to say really easy or really hard um, I think you can, you should be splicing in all these different paces. The important part again, is that you are giving enough recovery to make improvements because if you're not making improvements, then you are overtraining in some sort of fashion. Um, but on a, on a mezzo or micro look again, like there are some people who like a, the stimulus itself might not be a single workout. It might be three days of, of kind of quote trashing the body i think it, it just does it just depends on on what you're trying to prepare yourself for um the positive of that bp though is you know if you're anytime you're getting more volume at a desired pace you know uh the better so if by blocking up that intensity ultimately leads to us doing twice as many high intensity workouts in a safe manner then perhaps that is the way to go um so I, to me, I think we need a philosophy of, of hit with the structure of trad. So, and ultimately, I think that leads to a slightly different modified version of trad. So we need that philosophy that whatever we're attacking, we're going to kind of over-exaggerate in terms of stimulus and recovery. But we should be attacking all these different parts throughout the year. So the, the structure of trad provides us with that. We're going to hit, lit, mit, and hit throughout the year. The philosophy of hit, though, says... We, we might need a uh, more exaggerated stimulus to really get a better uh, adaptation. I think that, that, could, that could be true. All right. Well, let's switch gears just a little bit here on the show. I don't know if you noticed, but on Faster Skier, there's been a series of articles talking about race ideas here in this virtual time, which has made racing kind of sad and frustrating. But um, I just wanted to bring up a few ideas that I have for races. So um, I'd be interested to see what you think about these. And um, here, here's the first one. Okay. I do think it's time for us to have a Tour de France style cross country ski race. So it's got to be a real tour, not that not just the tour to ski. Okay, I'm I'm talking, you know, either at least seven stages, but we should have a grand tour, uh, multiple weeks. You know, thirteen of the fourteen days are spent racing. Every race is essentially a fifty k or above, uh, with maybe one or two shorter sprint time trial type things. And I think in Colorado we could we could do this if we utilized all the gravel grinding roads we have. Um, there are just there's so many mining roads and gravel roads that crisscross the state, go over incredible mountain passes, uh, and a lot of them are used as snowmobile roads. So I do think you could, and actually even just the mountain passes, the paved roads themselves could be um, those for sure. Like Independence Pass, Conwood Pass, you can get like a hardcore massive piston blade groomer up there on those. So I I think a tour to Colorado would be a good race. Now this is a little bit. This is not necessarily your pandemic thing, right? This is like in the future we should just have this uh so i have already mapped out my route uh, <laughs> or at least included some key things we could use i think this got to start in telluride uh not i'm not as familiar with these roads but i have on mountainbikeproject.com just like you could spend two or three hours trying to plan out a bike trip in just telluride and just using gravel roads not even mountain bike trails just just the gravel roads all the different there, there's like a hundred different passes that are gravel road passes and they're jeep roads 
So that's where I would start, and I would have a few stages utilizing some of those roads. Um, you could include the Alpine Loop, one of the most famous Jeep roads. That I kind of looked at. You're looking at about a 4% grade, 50 mile. That's a stage right there. Probably That would probably be the most spectacular stage. I, I honestly think you could you could have a major loppet that is just the Alpine Loop that would attract a lot of people. And you could even just have the Alpine Loop be an event that is a standalone participation event that could maybe work in the pandemic as well. You know, it's it's so long you could <laughs> okay, everyone's going to leave in uh <clears throat> 20 20 minute waves and no one's going to care. You know, and then everyone would be pretty spread out and you'd have to sign some waivers like don't die or you know, we'll have a there's there's a couple of towns you could pull off. I think if things were bad, but that would just be an epic route. Uh next stage would have to be Marshall Pass to the Monarch area. Uh, then you would probably do the tin cup loop, another like 60 mile epic journey that again, I kind of checked out according to mountain bike, mountain bike project, the grades on this are doable. I think you could actually double pull most of this if you were a Visma skier, uh, but, but having, um, <clears throat> the ability to classic, there's a couple of, you know, 13% pitches that happen, but the overall grade is 4%. Again, stunning. Uh, how about Hagerman pass? And the frying pan uh, gravel road on the other side. I think the best way of doing this actually would probably be to come up the frying pan road since it's more gradual. Uh, just incredibly stunning. Uh, incredibly stunning. Actually, if you just went up frying pan and down frying pan, that would be an insane. Because the downhill on that would be safer but fast. Uh, but but coming down on the Hagerman side on the Leadville side would be <laughs> you'd have to have some skills for sure. Uh, I'm not even sure if you could really groom that. That one that one's maybe reaching um, a little bit. But if you could do it, uh, yeah, maybe right. I think you maybe could. Then you could get Turquoise Lake in there as well on a stage. Uh, how about a Cottonwood stage to get us to the other side of the divide? Cottonwood Pass, 56 miles, 30 miles from Taylor's Reservoir to the top. Uh, the Continental Divide at 12,000 feet, really nice grades, tons of gradual switchbacks, incredible vistas and views. Once you get coming down into Buena Vista, that side, a little bit steeper on some parts, um, not so steep that it would be dangerous. You could definitely ski down that, uh, but skiing up it is a lung buster. I tried to roller ski it and um, this summer. that, that I, I was punished, we'll say that. Um, but Cottonwood Pass needs to happen. They groom that piston bully for snowmobiles, it's just like, oh my gosh, we need to make something happen, cross-country ski-wise. Uh, Keebler Pass, I think you could include in the Grand Tour, um, probably similar, and, and that's safe enough for a piston bully groomer, definitely a lot of snow. Um, I include the Frying Pan Reservoir at Hagerman Pass plus Turquoise Lake, that'd be like your Leadville stage, and then I think there would have to be a stage, Vail Pass, this would be epic, Vail Pass to Idaho Springs, right, so you go from Vail up, uh, the path, the the bike path, then down into uh, Copper Mountain, and then down into Frisco, to Breck. Oh no, no, I guess you'd ha you'd have to just follow that that the I seventy bike path, and, and and the snow runs out, so they'd have to figure this out somehow. But I think they can maybe make it work. But can you imagine that, like just forty five miles basically of of steady grades downhill? Oh my gosh, that would be just crazy. I guess you'd actually when you get to Frisco Breck, you'd have to climb up like Loveland Pass 
to so there would be another climb actually that would be that would be a true tour de france stage you start in vale you climb up then you descend into, into frisco then you got to climb again up loveland pass and then descend uh to the um the big tunnel the, the tunnel and then then you're on the bike path and you got like 40 miles straight of downhill you know um and but but if you really wanted to get epic you know when you get to idaho springs you could finish the stage with a 27 mile climb of mount evans anyway the, the point here is if you could organize a grand tour for skiing, I think it would be really sweet for the sport. Just something totally different. Uh, compare it a lot to um, that. And, and the other idea, the theme here is we have a lot of resources here in the in the mountains, Colorado. That the mountain bike craze has taken off. It's been huge for the sport. Gravel grinding, uh, hundred mile races are just the thing here. You can't even get into the steamboat century. You can't get into the Leadville hundred. People are paying eight hundred, nine hundred bucks to get in the lottery for those things. You know, so they're even the general citizens out here, like they would, they're crying out for that type of event. I just wonder if the pandemic now people are buying skis if they if they would take to that as well okay here's here's something maybe a little on a less scale that we could do in colorado and this one you might be able to get in the pandemic but again i think this is just a general implementation race idea race series we have the hill climb race series in our state for both trail running and biking road biking and it includes mount evans it includes pikes peak right uh we have races up those so why not get a hill climb race series for cross-country skiing uh, the aspen ski club already does a little thing on independence pass but it's like 14k 7k i don't know it's, it's not long enough it's on their side i think we add independence pass right you groom the whole thing there's plenty of snow on it you could get a piston bully doing the whole thing or, or just I, I think the aspen side up would be good uh that would be epic classic race up that uh, Mount Evans, 27 miles. You know, the first 13, 14 miles of it isn't even that bad. Um, you could probably double pole that if you were in, in good shape. Uh, the next part would be difficult. But you could have a ski switch at the lake halfway up. Um, but Mount Evans would definitely have to be included in that. I'm not sure about the snow quantity on, on Mount Evans on that road, but I, I think it gets shut down. So I wouldn't imagine it'd be that, that big of an issue. Uh, mentioned Cottonwood Pass. That one's definitely doable just to climb one way up uh what about weston pass you know weston pass maybe locally here or finally i had pikes peak on there as well pikes peak i would not want to do uh just because it's so steep <laughs> that would be brutal honestly like uh now maybe some people would get into it but i just think we need a hill climb series we need a hill climb series and you could do this probably more easily in the pandemic if you did an interval start uh a wave start or even just had your total times Okay, one more series that is not pandemic-related I think we need to bring to cross-country skiing, my big grand ideas. How about a rail trail race series? We have a few rail trails that are pretty famous around here, and I think uh, some of them are groomed. Most of these are groomed, actually, the three I mentioned. Um, you could do the Breck Frisco Trail, you could do the Frisco Vale Trail, and you could do the Mineral Belt. That's all in one kind of section. I think Summit County and Lake County could kind of get together and do a three-race series. We have a race already that happens on the Mineral Belt, so if you didn't even want to try that hard, you could just do that. But if you wanted to make it spe you know, specific to this only has to take place on the rail trail, you know, do a Mineral Belt just one way, 11-mile race, uh, I don't know. But there should be a th at least a three-race series on each of those trails and have some points. Now, you could make this virtual as well. You could have dates for each course. You could mix and match. Um, but I think you, and, and try to see, you know, have, have total time be the victory. You, you know, you gotta, you gotta do the whole, 
the whole trail, each of all those trails, and um, and then you can go from there. So I like that. And you could also mix and match by having like, you know, fastest total skate time. The person who does the most uh, the most times on the trail. Like if you completed the whole mineral belt trail uh, three times in a month, right? Like that, would, and you could add that up. Um, that's kind of following in line with what the Faster Skier article talked about. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could be creative. I think the one thing we do have to think about is not everyone has Strava, not everyone has a capability to do, to upload GPS. And sometimes that tech side is frustrating. So I do like, if we're operating on the honesty anyway, like I kind of do like the idea of you just saying how many laps you did of a course. Um, Because the other thing too with skiing, it's like, it's not like running and biking where, okay, guys, you had a month, post a time on this course. It's like, well... (laughs) What happens when it's like the classic track got iced over? It's firm and hard. I could double pull the entire mineral belt, you know, 11 miles in like 45 minutes when that happens. The other day I went out, it was eight degrees and potato starch snow. It took me like two hours to go five miles. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, hmm. All right. This is my pandemic list, though. You ready for it? Clister King of the Mountain. That's right, Clister King of the Mountain. This is a spring race, and it is the most vertical feet climbed classic skiing, okay, in a set amount of time. Um, and you have to use Clister because <laughs> it's spring, right? So we set uh, in Leadville. We've got a, a few different options, but you could you you would you could do this anywhere, really. Um, and and because anyone you do have to have a GPS for this because you have you're just doing vertical feet climb. I think this takes away some of the speed component, some of the conditions component a little. I get it. If you have ideal conditions, um, you might be able to climb faster. But since you have to use clister, everyone kind of becomes a little bit equalized in that sense because you got to get your wax right no matter what, no matter how fast or slow. And and assuming you know th- this since it's clister conditions, the conditions are going to be somewhat similar across the state or the region. So you you do a one hour, most vertical feet climbed, a 12 hour, and then a 24 hour. And the reason I said those is one hour is kind of more for those people who are like, just going to, you know, one, I don't, I have no interest in skiing all day. Two, maybe the type of athlete who is like a high school, 5k, 10k guy. And they're like, I'm okay blasting for an hour and just seeing what I can do. Uh, The 12 hour is kind of more the cedar skier guy, right? Like we like skiing a lot, but we're not really interested in skiing at like 1am. Um, and so, you know, let's see what we can do in just a normal day during the daylight, 24 hour. That's kind of for your crazies. Right. And, uh, so those are the three, the three time designations I would put a similar one, similar spring skiing event. we got plenty of time to prepare. How about the crust king of the mountain, the crust king of the mountain. This is the same thing. Most vertical feet climbed any course. Okay. But you have to crust ski this one. I would have these three designations, a 30 minute, a one hour and a day. And the 30 minute is truly a speed test because now you are, the time is almost limiting you. So you're going to have to really push it hard. But if you go, as anyone knows, if you are crest skiing and yeah, it's fast, it's great, it's fun. If you start doing, you know, you're out on some glacier bowl and you are climbing up high, it is brutal. Okay. So I I like that 30 minute because I think like elite athletes would legitimately be challenged by that. The one hour kind of is the same type of challenge, but perhaps for a a different type of athlete or or just your general public. And then of course the day is that's for your endurance people. Like I'm going to just crust ski all day. Now the thing with crust skiing, you can't obviously ski during like the ideal warm parts of the day. So that would 
kind of also pose an interesting challenge. Uh, you know, are you gonna what are you gonna do? Ski from like one a.m. to to nine a.m. Uh, it'd be interesting. Kind of a fun component. Okay, as you can tell, these are getting better as we go. So I hope you're enjoying this. I I am. I my I love dreaming up ideas, especially as they pertain to skiing. Uh, more coffee. Here we go. Fueling the rage. Hmm. All right. This is one that I would actually I've thought about trying to set up. It's a local race. It's called Twelve Hours of Turquoise. I think you could do one of these in the summer and one in the winter. Okay, the summer one would be you're on the Turquoise Lake Road. It's a 17-mile road, probably one of the most beautiful loops in the entire country that's that's very low-traveled, to be honest. But you have 12 hours. You can run, bike, ski, or snowshoe. I guess I would say in the summer it would be run, bike, or roller ski, right, or walk or hike. And you've got 12 hours, and it's just total laps around the lake champion, okay, total time-moving champion. All right. And um, and I, I think right there you've got that the total laps that's really going to hit your elite athlete side. The total time could be elite athlete, could be, you know, your endurance people, just your general public. Um, but you've only got 12 hours right to do this. So you got to choose your mode wisely. You can have fun. Right. You're, you get to just be outside. Maybe you do a lap skiing, then you do a lap biking, then you do a lap running and you call it a day. You know, what better day would that be? It sounds pretty awesome to me. Um, the other, th- I mean, if you were really advanced, you would just do a distance or a vert challenge on this, but I wanted to say total laps just to open it up to people even who did not have the capability to measure those things. Okay. Now here's my other two categories that I think will really get people excited and you could incorporate this in almost any race. Okay. <laughs> Most calories consumed while still skiing 30 K. Okay. So in the winter, this is it combines sort of the eating challenge with like the <laughs> the skiing challenge. I don't know if you've seen, you know, like the 10K challenges where you have to run a 10K, eat 10,000 calories, and then run another 10K. And, and it's really hard to, to do in one day. So this would be who can consume the most calories while still skiing a 30-kilometer day. All right. And then if you're kind of more like we're going to isolate to a specific type of food how about or, or a beer mile type thing most beer consumed while still skiing 30k you could just enter in anything you know if you i want to do chocolate chip cookies just saying how many chocolate chip cookies can you eat while still you still got to ski turquoise twice or, or once or whatever or maybe you say you've got to ski it once eat all your food and then ski it again i mean, that that sort of stuff is funny <laughs> and it's probably safe i think you know uh, someone you know, have to clean up the, the puke out there on a uh, mile marker 12, but whatever. Uh, how about a virtual relay? Okay, this is something also for totally pandemic. You set up a bunch of different courses. Could be local, could be across state lines or even national borders. You have to organize four team members, and then each person goes out, does a time on the course, lowest total time wins. Uh, I think this could be a unique way to bring... The, the ski community together in these unique times. You know, people are cheering across from Canada to the U.S. You could even incorporate different courses in Norway and Finland and Russia and the U.S. You could have just American Loppet courses. Uh, and, and then also, you know, we have friends who are in Vermont and we live in Colorado or we have friends that are in Minnesota or Montana or Idaho or Washington or California or whatever and or Utah and and so now we are forced to organize those teams, which is kind of a, a logistical thing in and of itself. 
you know, uh, and you could also have stage winners, right? So who won the West Yellowstone stage? Who won the Berkey stage? Who won the Birkin stage? Who won the Leadville stage? And uh, they could get awarded as well. Okay, last last two here. Fundraiser ideas. Maybe since it's a pandemic, we just totally, and here's my problem with pandemic races in general, is one, they're kind of unfair because these courses, again, conditions change everything. And two, you know, a lot of these, <laughs> the, the hoopla of winning, having a trophy, having a medal, getting a prize, that's kind of gone anyway. Um, a lot of these, you know, these races are, are sort of strapped. So they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to give you a virtual certificate. <laughs> okay, thanks. You know, I'll print that out. Or I'll, maybe I'll just leave my screen on all winter so I can look at it and remember how great I was. Um, but why not just kind of forego all that and say, here's the goal is it's, instead of having a month where anyone can enter a time on a loop, uh, have an entire month where the community pledges to do something like, let's say, 24-7 skiing on a trail. So every the there you know if you took let's say our community here in Leadville you'd say someone is going to be skiing twenty four seven for thirty days on the CMC trails or the Mineral Belt and we're going to raise money for a cause um, and because I've seen these twenty four seven events right they happen for one day and, and you don't have to say for a whole month like that that would be really incredible right <laughs> maybe it's a week maybe it's one day. Uh, maybe it's three days, you know, just kind of to raise awareness, raise money for a cause. But but the whole community has to get in on it together to do it so they can have someone out there all the time. It's like the IHOP, uh, you know, 24 hours of prayer in Kansas City. So there you go. Hmm. I'm kind of a fan of the month-long challenges. I think if you go, you know, you could do time, total time skiing. Vertical feet gained, I think, is a good one that challenges people. I think it's the best one, uh, the fairest one, probably. A distance can be kind of unfair, but it's not bad. Loops on a course is uh, approachable, right? Everyone, It's accessible. There's the word. Then I wanted to say it's equitable. It's accessible. So any of those ones I think people can kind of get behind and think about. I have so much more stuff that I wanted to get to on this show, but we are already kind of way way over time so um i guess man you know oh i will say one merry christmas uh two we have part two of our jim galanis episode that is now finished and we're just letting jim kind of go over it and check it out so as soon as he gives me okay to post that i'm gonna do that we had tons of listeners listen to part one and i kind of do feel like uh part one if you are a, a ski fan you've been a ski fan for a while or you maybe know jim or know you know know him personally or know who he is that first episode um might not have even been really all that riveting you know because it was a lot of a lot of stuff about his career now i still found it interesting um and granted part of that's because i'm i'm a newbie but also you know I, I think he shared some things that that aren't always out there about his career um and and we started talking about training but this second episode it's 90 minutes long and he really um he he talks a lot about again explaining some training principles but really justifying those which i found super edifying as an athlete uh, and I think coaches and athletes will, and sports researchers will also find it very fascinating and beneficial. Like you can immediately apply some of these things. Um, and then he also talks about, we call it the state of skiing because 
I think we, we talk about community-based ski clubs. We talk about kind of the state of the national governing bodies, the U.S. Olympic Committee, uh, the World Cup, the, the World Cup ski team, and all those things are kind of interrelated. And so as we kind of move through those topics, I, I felt rather seamlessly. It was really hard to categorize the interview because it's not like we just said, okay, let's shift gears and I'm going to ask you this question. It just sort of flowed together as one. So I, I really think uh, if you enjoyed part one, you're really going to like part two. And if you missed part one, but but you're a veteran, you kind of know who Jim is, you know, maybe hop right into part two. So I'm excited to post that, hoping to do that in the next week or so and kind of keep things rolling. So this was our, our Christmas episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I hope you are uh, being safe and that you are healthy this Christmas. And um, yeah, well, hopefully you get out on the trails and get to ski a little bit because it does look like in some places winter has finally come and we have a white Christmas in a lot of different areas. So, so long and farewell to all a, a, a good night. Uh, what, what is the thing? Good night to all and to all a good night. I said it wrong. Today, what today's Christmas day. There we go. I closed it off with the best Christmas quote of all time. This has been the Cedar Skier Podcast. You're listening to Shovel Lake Public Radio. Santa Claus, welcome to the family, Buster. <laughs> Look at his relatives already, huh? <laughs> Wallace and Davis are flat, you know. We've got to get some loot. We've got to take the show to Chicago oh, or Boston. No, no. I, I can't make it, huh? I'm going to be very busy. I, wait a minute, I'll join you. <laughs> From what I see now, that'll cut through the murkiest storm they can dish up. What I'm trying to say is, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my sleigh tonight? It will be an honor, sir. Mrs. Walker, the lady who hired you. But I must say, you're the best looking one I've ever seen. Really? Your beard doesn't have one of those things that goes over your ears. Well, that's because it's real. Just like I'm really the Santa Claus. It's Christmas Eve. It's, it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We, we, we smile a little easier. We, 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 we share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. The thermometer's getting red. I hate red thermometers. Why, Frosty? Because when the thermometer gets all reddish, the temperature goes up. And when the temperature goes up, I start to melt. I don't want to miss a red under cover, and I said, do you want to get rid of my lead rifle? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. The Griswold family Christmas tree. Isn't it a little big? It's not big, it's just full. Dad, that thing wouldn't fit in our yard. Not going in our yard, Russ. It's going in our living room. This is extremely important. Would you please tell him that instead of presents this year, I just want my family back. 
No toys, nothing but Peter, Kate, Buzz, Megan, Linny, and Jeff. And my aunt and my cousins. And if he has time, my Uncle Frank. Okay? What list? Come on, a list. He's making a list. Checking it twice. Santa? What? Don't forget the Grinch. I know he's mean and hairy and smelly. His hands might be cold and clammy. But I think he's actually kind of sweet. Sweet! You don't think he's sweet? Merry Christmas, Santa. Nice kid. Bad judge of character. So, Dad, I plan out our whole day. First, we'll make snow angels for two hours, and then we'll go ice skating, and then we'll eat a whole roll of Toll House cookie dough as fast as we can, and then, to finish, we'll snuggle.